guys. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastor elders here, and we are in John 8 this morning. We are going to be looking at verses 12 through 30. We have a decent amount to go through, so I'm not going to spend too much time at the front. We've already kind of laid the groundwork. How sweet was that time of prayer together, praying about Jesus being the light of the world and how desperately we need him. This section of scripture is one uh, that's actually relatively familiar for a handful of people. Uh, again, I feel like I've said that a lot many weeks. Of the, Hey, these are pretty familiar passages, and I think that goes to show us a couple things. One is um, that as we study God's Word together, it's hard to not come across and be like, each of these passages are significant. And then I think the other thing with John in particular is there, there is a weightiness and a significance to the Gospel of John uh, that you can't escape from. Every single, almost every single message we're confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. And it's not with somebody else's necessarily interpretation of who Jesus is, but who Jesus himself actually claims to be. And so we're in the light of the world passage. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes a passage like this can almost come off, um, maybe it's because of songs like, uh, like the hide it under a bushel no song, but sometimes it can, it can be a little bit almost like kitty. Um, it can have like a, oh, isn't that sweet? Or isn't that precious that Jesus is the light of the world? But what's fascinating about this passage is that it's actually incredibly weighty. We're just coming off of the woman caught in adultery where we get to see Jesus self-identify as the judge, as the lawgiver. And in this section Jesus himself is actually making really bold claims. Ones, in fact, that will eventually uh, lead to his own execution. So we're going to break it up into two sections. We're going to look at 12 through 20 and then 21 through 30. So with that, let us hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows in me, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father, if you knew me you would have known my father also. So in this first section, I actually want us to look at the last verse first, in verse 20. These, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. What we get in this little verse is actually really helpful for us to understand the weightiness of what's happened here. This would be a throwaway line if there was no reason for Jesus to potentially be arrested. But the narrator, John, interjects 
to me. He says, and just so you all know, while Jesus was in the middle of this, nobody even arrested him. This is a shocking thing. It's a shocking moment that Jesus hasn't been arrested after saying such an outlandish claim. So let's look back now and why is it so shocking that Jesus isn't arrested? And it starts with our first verse. Verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus starts off interaction by expanding on what John has said actually at the very beginning of the book. We see in John 1, 4 through 5 and 9, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is embodying a theme that runs throughout the scriptures, that the world apart from God exists in darkness. Darkness implies ignorance, folly, and sin. And in John 8, Jesus makes a declaration that we all have to determine what we believe about it. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you are a Pharisee listening to this, if you are a religious teacher listening to this, there's interesting pieces to this. There's conditional pieces. First, he makes the declaration, we'll get into this, that I am the light of the world. But then he says, whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness. This statement that Jesus is making actually is rather offensive. Because he's saying, unless you believe in me, you're in darkness. This is an offensive statement. One of the reasons why the Pharisees get so upset because they would say, what do you mean we're in darkness? We are the enlightened ones. We're the ones that know the law. We're the ones that know the truth. We're the ones that are enforcing all of this. And like we've seen from the Pharisees time and time again that there is a, a pride and an arrogance and an unwillingness to listen I am the light. If you follow me, you'll never be in darkness. You will have the light of life. This imagery is quite vivid. And this would herald all of those listening back to some really fascinating moments in Israel's history. Where the light of God really helped them out. Any thoughts of when that was? Anything come to mind for anybody? The pillar of fire. Exactly this moment where Jesus is speaking and talking about the light of life instantly in every single good Israeli boy or, or Jewish boy or girl, they would have instantly gone back to the Exodus. Israel's most famous story. 
one that is ingrained inside and out. And they would have understood, they understood the pillar of fire to be God himself. Jesus sharing with all who will listen, I am that light. Just as your ancestors found life through following the light in which I gave you and the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, so too now. If you desire life, the light is right in front of you. All of Israel would have understood the pillar of fire metaphor and they would have understood to be a reference to Yahweh. See, Israel, and in this moment, they would have loved to have God's presence in their midst like it was back then. At least they think they would have wanted it like it was back then. But there have been a relatively long time of the felt absence of God in their history. They're going in around 400 years of relative silence. So their longings for something like that would be really high. We want the pillar of fire again. But do they want the pillar of fire to be made in their image or do they want the pillar of fire? That they might be with God. And here Jesus is saying he is the light of the world. He's right in front of them. Do they want the light of the world? Jesus himself, God in the flesh, or are they primarily interested in getting things from God so that they can live the life they want to live, how they want to live it? Now, on, on top of this, Jesus uses a phrase that would never be uttered by a rabbi. He uses a phrase, ego, a me. In Greek, in Hebrew, it would be Yahweh, I am. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John takes us through a number of these. We saw this back in John 6. I am, ego, a me, the bread of life. This is the second major piece that we see, even though we see ego, me, ego, a me, scattered throughout John. There's a few moments where it was highlighted specifically. And here we had, Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. And here he says, ego, a me, I am the light of the world. world. This is God's most revered name, which was given to Moses in the burning bush. And now Jesus is using it to refer to himself. And it is legitimately comments like this that will get Jesus killed. Why does John in verse 20 say, shockingly, nobody arrested him? Because everybody understood what Jesus was saying in this moment. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be Yahweh. And anybody that was claiming to do that should probably be arrested. And eventually put to death, which will happen. 
So next we see the Pharisees, they challenge his claim. And I want to make sure we continue to be careful to not pick on the Pharisees too bad. I think it's really quick to easy to look at the Pharisees and be like, oh man, how could they do such a thing? How could they not see what is the matter with them? And I think we've got to be really, really, really careful because I think more often than not, we might find ourselves, we might find ourselves, we good, John? You got it. (laughs) Wrong pipe. We might find ourselves in a situation where we are actually way more similar to the Pharisees than we want to think. And so oftentimes we don't want to see that because Pharisees are very clearly painted in scripture and not a great light. So we'd much rather like put ourselves like in another category rather than ones that are probably relatively similar to the Pharisees. And I also want to highlight what the Pharisees do next isn't inherently wrong. This dude actually just claimed to be God. So it seems like if you don't believe that to be true, the next good thing to do or appropriate thing might be to do is let's ask some questions. Let's figure out what he means by that. Now, John, the author, has given us insight into some of their, their thoughts, and already their history is not good as far as their relationship with Jesus. They're trying to trap them. But I just want us to realize that, man, we've got to be careful not to call the Pharisees out so hard because we are, can be more like them than we think. So the Pharisees say to him, you're, be, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus eventually is going to answer this question. They're referring to the law and trying to convict somebody or when we're trying to declare or collectively decide that something's true. Uh, you need two witnesses. Again, it's seemingly fair pushback. And Jesus gives some answers in verses 14 through 19. Jesus replies, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And in our minds, this should have brackets in it, according to the flesh. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Handful of things for us to notice here. First, Jesus is not trying to overly persuade He's not even necessarily trying to win the Pharisees here. He still gives them dignity and the time of day. And he still longs that they would come to a saving knowledge of him, even if they don't get it. But Jesus knows what he's on about. He knows where he's come from. He knows his mission. He knows where he's headed. And he's not going to let anything get in the way of that. I love that we get to see here, many chapters before Jesus goes to the cross, we already see Jesus' resolve in being unwavering about his mission, what he's come to do, who he is, even though it will come at a cost of his life. 
He just goes on to say, I, I don't need witnesses to validate who I am. We just established that he is the judge. He is the lawgiver. He has plenty of witnesses, but they aren't needed for these claims to be true. And he goes on to explain why. Because he is God. The Father and I are one, and the Father testifies on his behalf. This brings to mind Jesus' baptism. Jesus, at his baptism, he is validated and verified. Rachel DeLon shared with us a few weeks ago this passage about how the Lord had been encouraging her and teaching her. And it's from Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus has already been validated. His testimony is true and the Pharisees are missing it. He's saying, if you need witnesses, the Father himself is testifying over me. He could have argued even more so. If you need more witnesses, look back to my baptism. If you need more witnesses, look back to the ministry that's already happened so far. If you need more witnesses, he's even calling and echoing back to eternity past. Look at creation for it testifies of who I am. But I love that even in here, even though Jesus is stern, I don't get the impression that Jesus is ever a jerk to the Pharisees. He's consistent, he's loving, he's honest, and he even brings claims against them. You judge according to the flesh. You see, they haven't, like Jesus spoke about in John 3, as he's having the conversation with Nicodemus, they haven't been born from above. They are fleshly and are judging through a fleshly lens. They are not looking at things with spiritual eyes. They are looking on the outward appearance. And some of this might be triggering like 1 Samuel 16, 7, as David is being selected as king, that God doesn't look upon the outward appearance of man, but he looks upon the inward appearance. What Jesus is calling the Pharisees out on is they are judging inappropriately. They are judging without heaven in mind. And as we've talked about many times already throughout John, is that Jesus is the one that brings heaven's perspective in, and he judges with heaven's lens, with God's eyes. The Pharisees are stuck. They're not ready to see God move. They're not expectant. Jesus goes on to share the sad reality, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Again, if we were looking at the moments that John is referencing back of being shocked that Jesus was, was arrested, this would be one of those spots. You know neither me or my father if you knew me you would know my father also. This is going to be expounded in John 14, 6, where Jesus 
I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. If you knew the Father, you'd know me. If you knew me, you'd know the Father. The call and invitation is to make sure that we're not like the Pharisees today. That we have eyes to see what God is on about and faith to believe that God is who he said he is and will continue to work in powerful ways. Verse 16, we have another beautiful ego a me statement that sometimes gets missed a little bit. At least it has by me. Where it says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true because I am not alone. But I am the one who sent me, the Father. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true because ego a me, I am not alone, but I am the one who sent me the Father. I don't want to miss this. And again, some of this is overly simple. I get it. But again, I think there are so many times in the craziness and busyness of life that we miss out on so many of the simple realities of the gospel and simple truths. And they're they're complex. I understand this. But Jesus' I am statement is a beautiful one. I am not alone. I am not alone. I never have been. I am not alone. Why? Because... He is with the Father and the Father is with him. His authority is rooted in the Trinitarian identity of God. Edward King in his commentary of John says this about the statement. The statement, I am not alone, expresses in one statement the entire philosophy of Jesus' ministry. The activity of the Son is defined by his relation to the Father, just as the activity of the Father is made known by his relation to the Son. And it it is out of this mysterious and glorious relation that the love of God is bestowed upon the world. And it's interesting, we, we prayed, I think Preston, you called out with God's light shine on loneliness. I was praying over our message and preparing this week. And this was one of the areas that really stood out And we've talked about this before. But just as Jesus was not alone because the Father was always with him, if we are followers of Jesus, this is our reality too. This is the truth that if we are followers of Jesus, we are never, never, never alone. We are brought into fellowship with the Father and with the Son and the Spirit. And as I was thinking and preparing for this time, I, I just, I, w- I wasn't overwhelmed, but I just think I, I began to think through one of the great lies, I think, that we believe 
that come our way. is one in which I believe the gospel directly contradicts, and that's that we are alone sometimes. Now, now physically that can be true. We can be separated from places, but I think sometimes we believe that we are alone. We are in our own space. We get to do our own thing. I am by myself. There's nobody else around. I can live my life the way I want to live it. And I think one of the most glorious, and we get to see this in 1 John 1, we read about it a little bit, is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are now never, ever, ever alone. For he is with us. And I believe one of the great lies of the enemy today is one that is sunk deep into many of our hearts and minds, is that you are alone sometimes. Nobody sees you. Nobody hears you. Nobody cares. And I'm so grateful that because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, that's not theologically true. You might feel alone or you might feel the felt absence of God in your life, but the reality is he is with you. The psalmist says it this way, if I send to the heavens, you are there. If I send to the depths of Sheol, you are there. Where can I hide from your presence, O God? Next week, we are gonna talk about the freedom that we have in Jesus And you know what that rests in? The reality and the truth that we are with God and never alone. Now, I'm really grateful because that could be cool. All right, let's hyper-spiritualize everything. I'm never alone, I'm never alone, I'm never alone, but I'm actually practically alone a lot. That's why, and we're gonna read it in a few minutes in 1 John John isn't just ecstatic about the reality that we now are in fellowship with God, but that we also are in fellowship with one another. This is why Jesus didn't just spiritually come. He embodily came. So whether you're single, married, a child, fill in the blank, know this today. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are never, ever ever alone. And that might be a great comfort and that might scare the tar out of you potentially. But this is the truth. And friends, as followers of Jesus, we must continue to combat the lies that come our way with the truth of Scripture. But Jesus is the light of the world. This is a bold, audacious claim. What do we believe about this? Jesus continues in 21 through 30. We'll go faster through this section. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? 
And Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking with them about the Father. So Jesus gets a lot more clear. This is Jesus being very explicit with his listeners. Not in any racy way, just very clear. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but just, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I will always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You know, you could look through this and be like, well, I thought Jesus said he doesn't judge. And the reality is, Actually, Jesus is judged. That's part of his character. That's part of who he is. But he doesn't judge fleshly. He judges from a heavenly perspective. And he lays down theological truth that we find throughout Scripture for the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus warns that sin will lead to death. But he provides hope, invitation, option, unless you believe. Believe what? That I am. That I am he. This gets them all discombobulated. Their minds are like on overdrive. Who the heck are you? Just tell me plainly, please. I'm sick of the riddles. Just, just be clear. And to be honest, I could see both sides of this. I could see how maybe they were a little bit confused, but I think most of them are just trying to be in their mind. They're like, Jesus cannot be saying what he's actually saying here. Jesus can't be saying what he's actually saying here. It's not possible. And so Jesus says, let's make it, okay, everybody take a deep breath. And again, to us, it may not be uber clear because we aren't steeped in Jewish tradition and teaching perhaps So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, this small phrase is incredibly loaded. First of all, it's prophetic and a little bit on the nose as he says, when you lifted up the Son of Man. These very people in whom Jesus is talking to are going to be part of the crew that eventually will be a major part of him going to the cross. So when you lifted up, Son of man. Now here the son of man is one of the clearest terms used to refer to the Messiah. Here there now is no wiggle room for interpretation for the Pharisees. Jesus is making it abundantly clear 
That guy who was talked about in Daniel, that's me. I am here. That's what I've said. That's what I'm claiming. That's what my actions will continue to reflect. And then we have this interesting phrase, lifted up. In Greek, it's hupocete. And it conveys a rich duality of meaning. In the context of the cross, the verb speaks of death, suffering, and defeat. But in its larger, larger context, the verb also speaks of exaltation and majesty and glorification. You see, in this one word, the message of the gospel is presented to you. It's only in his humiliation that Jesus can be exalted and glorified. Edward Kink once again says this, the statement is a paradox. Combining the most humiliating and cruel act the ancient world could devise, crucifixion, with a title, Son of Man. And that title, it incorporates all the power, glory, and authority of God himself. And by these words, Jesus declares the heart of the Christian message. That the judge, the lawgiver, Jesus himself, has decided to receive upon himself the guilt of the defendant. After Jesus says these things, we hear that many believe. We don't know what comes of these people. Well, what's true of them and even as true as of us today is there is a confrontation that is taking place of who and what we believe Jesus to be. Is Jesus truly the light of the world? This is where famous saints of the past, guys like C.S. Lewis, devised a, a really helpful frame of thinking when it comes to the person of Jesus. He says there's three options for those of us who think about Jesus. Jesus is either liar, he's lunatic, or he's Lord. And passages like John 8 make us wrestle with that. Because either Jesus is bat nuts crazy by saying something like, I and the Father are one, that I am the light of the world, that pillar of fire that was back in Exodus, you know, with your that's me. That's nuts. Unless it's true. Friends, I, I, we have to continue to ask the question of who is Jesus? Is he liar? Is he lunatic or Lord? Because if he's liar or lunatic, then we can live our lives however we want to live. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. They wanted to punch holes into this person who had come so that they could continue to have their status and comfort in the way in which they wanted it. They wanted God to be an addition to their life, not the one that they sat underneath and served with their whole life. But if Jesus is Yahweh, and if he has revealed himself to us, God in the flesh, 
And he truly is light of the world. How are we going to respond to him? Worship team, come on up. I don't know where any of you are at today in your walk and relationship with Jesus. There's some of you who are probably like, yes, Jesus is light of the world. I'm following him wherever we go. There might be some of you who are like, I don't know yet. I'm trying to figure it out. There might be others of you here who are like, I've tried it and it sucked and I'm not really into it. Wherever you're at in your spectrum of faith and following Jesus, I just want to say we're glad that you're here and that God is not afraid of questions or process or any of those things. But I do not want us to continually to kick the can down the road of who do we say Jesus is. In the West, we are really good at declaring certain things to be true, but having lives that may not reflect those things to be accurate. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will have the light of life and will no longer walk in darkness. And if you're anything like me, there have been plenty of moments in your life where you feel like you are stumbling around in the dark. That there seems to be a disconnect. Either Jesus isn't all the way right or something's wrong with me. I don't know what the problem is. There's this tension that exists there. And I want us to be honest and recognize that there is tension that exists there. We'd be lying if there's not. So I want to take it to 1 John 1, and I'm going to read it for us and then pray. But I want us to hear what the same author has to say. Listen to him. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified, proclaimed to you the eternal life. We touched him. We sat with him. We ate with him. We drank with him. We proclaim him to you which was with the Father and has made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. I love passages like 1 John that embrace the tension between declaratively what is true and the practical reality of living that out and that it is hard. 
And that there are moments where we might declare things with our head and live in another way, live out in another way. And the invitation from Jesus is not fake it till you make it. The invitation from Jesus is come, bring it all forward. Let us confess our sins and watch him forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the other piece to that is that we also must practice the truth. But friends, my hope for us this morning is that Jesus once again has, through his word, has presented himself to you in a way in which maybe we feel uncomfortable, maybe we don't feel uncomfortable, I don't know. But Jesus' bold claims that I and the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I hope for many of us this morning we are reminded of the truth of that. Even in the midst of a time where things are tumultuous, gray, But he is the source of our life and the invitation is to cling to Jesus, to declare the truths and practice the truths. And so this morning, we recognize that Jesus, you are the light of the world. We recognize that this was a bold, audacious claim. And we thank you that through your death, and resurrection and ascension, you have been validated, your words have been validated. And because of that, Jesus, we turn to you, the source of life. And we take this bread and we dip it in this juice, which represents the blood of the new covenant in your body which was given. And we say thank you Jesus, would you help us live in the reality that you are Lord and that you are with us. Let us take this in remembrance of him. We're going to respond by singing two songs. And prayer is going to be available to the right or to the left. But let us rejoice and celebrate that Jesus has come, that he's ascended, that he's given his spirit, that he is with us, that we are no longer alone. And let, let, us, let us declare these truths, but not just declare them as we walk out of this place. Let us desire to live under that lordship, under the reality, the truth that Jesus is the light. And that we too get to carry that light with us. So let us stand now and respond to Jesus.